message is part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Open your Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. One of the most interesting things to discover as we open up the Bible and we kind of read through, especially the New Testament, is that we see an absence of a word that we use quite often. In fact, we see it uh, even in a secular society. We see the word Christian out there a lot. I don't know if you've ever like filled out papers at the courthouse. It used to be that there was a place on there when you were given identity, you would even kind of put your persuasion of faith and Christian was on there. Sometimes if you look at old hospital records, they would say, here's your information, here's where you live, Christian, non-Christian, and they would have different things like that. We probably don't see it in public record quite so much anymore. But that word Christian is so familiar to us. But do you realize that it's pretty unfamiliar to the Old Testament? I mean, to the New Testament. It's only found three times. That was not really how you know people were described in the New Testament as Christians, this word Christian. And the three times that we see it, you know, it's not apologetic. It's not that. It's just... This is not the dominant word. Acts chapter uh, 11, verse 26 says, For the whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. I realize that's kind of hard for you to see. I wanted all three of these occasions to be there, but that's in Acts eleven twenty-six. If we go down to Acts chapter 26, verse 28, this is when Paul is talking with Agrippa. He's trying to convince him of the gospel and sharing the gospel with them. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? This is an unbeliever who's kind of responding. So we know that this word Christian kind of exists. We just don't see it in the Bible, but three times. The final time is what we just studied when we went verse by verse in First Peter. And in First Peter chapter 4, verse 16, it says, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, this person who we are in Christ, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in his name. Now that may be very old news to you, but it may be brand new news to you this morning that in the New Testament that is all about Christianity, all about the person of Christ, that there's only three times that we actually see the word Christian. When we refer to one another all the time, if we're believers in Christ, have placed our hope and faith in him, we kind of consider ourselves Christians and we use that as our identifier. So if the Bible doesn't use the word Christian, what does it use? Well, there's a whole other phrase that's used, and it's used really dramatically a lot. I mean, it's every time that you look in the New Testament and you see the Apostle Paul especially, this was his favorite term, it was the term in Christ. Now, was he opposed the word Christian? No. But he really wanted to identify who we really are, and it was much more of a positional thing. He was very intentional in his wording, and he would talk about those who are in Christ. Not just Christians, but those who are actually in Christ. Now, so that you don't think I'm just kind of playing word games, there really is an intentionality about this. And it's not just deep theology. It's That's where our position is. This morning, I can categorically say, and I'm saying that not because of my opinion, but because of what the Word of God would say, everybody in here is either in Christ or you are out of Christ. You're not in Christ. 
And I don't say that as a mean, kind of judgmental kind of thing. That's the only two places you can be in life is either you have trusted Jesus Christ, put your whole faith and trust in him, and you say, okay, Christ is the sufficient answer that God gave to remedy this separation that I feel between a holy God and a sinful people. You're either in Christ, the Bible would say, or you're not in Christ. And yet, would you agree with me that the word Christian kind of gets tossed about, you know, quite often? I mean, we, you know, some the big debate, are we really a Christian nation anymore? I'm not going to make too many friends this way. Uh, we're not a Christian nation, you know, because not everybody is in crisis in America. That Just because you're in America doesn't mean that you're in Christ. If we want to, do we have some Christian influence in America? Yeah. There's some influence there. If we go back, I'm not trying to uh, water down that uh, some of our forefathers in America were very intentional about their beliefs, and yet they did not impose that upon a people. And so we do see a grounding, if we look back in American history, and see that there was some great Christian influence. But are we a Christian country? I would say biblically, no. And we want to be precise about that because we really do, not to hurt people, not to be judgmental, but but to be accurate so that we don't give a false influence that just because you were born in a state or you're born in this place or that place, that some kind of, with that birth came this inheritance of the kingdom of God because nothing could be further from the truth. And if anything, the Bible very much makes that declaration when Christ comes and the Jewish people go, okay, we got this from birth. From birth, we've been God's people. And Jesus said, you know, yes, you are favored, and God did call you his people, but new life is going to be when you're born again. That's kind of the conversation that he had with Nicodemus. you got to be born again. You, you want to be in favor of God? Then this is the way that you can do that. And so we go through the Bible and we begin to see that as we've been talking through this foundation series, that there's a lot of differences between us and other religions of the world. For the most part, we've kind of looked at just the major religions of the world. We've looked at, you know, whether it's uh, Muslim beliefs or Hindu beliefs, and we've just kind of compared, not to be judgmental, but just say, okay, here's how we're different from them. Then you make the, the decision on your own. This morning, we're going to look at this whole aspect of salvation, redemption, How does an imperfect people, humanity, be right with a perfect God? Every major religion will answer that question in some form or fashion. They will give their theory, their uh, ideas of what they believe for us as a people who we would admit that we are not perfect people. And how do we make right with a holy God? The Bible begins to answer that, and it only answers it one way. It doesn't give us various forms. It answers it one way, and it talks about Christ. Others, their means of salvation is going to be really focused, for the most part, every other world religion, especially the major world religions, always puts the emphasis back on you and your ability to be a really, really good person and to earn your favor with God. It's a drastically different approach. As Christians, as people of the Bible, we say we have no hope apart from Christ. 
He is the answer to our sin problem. Most of the other, if not all of the other religions, especially major religions of the world, say, okay, but here's a method that you can get right with God. Again, uh, not just to pick out the Muslims, but because that's a good example. They have the, the five pillars of, of, you know, of Islam. And you do those five things and, and you can start working your way into rightness with God. But here's the whole thing. The major differences here, one is going to place their salvation on you. The other one's going to place their, their hope of salvation on what you can, uh, on what you can do. The other one is solely on Christ. One places their salvation on what you do. The other one, Christianity, places salvation on what is already done. Not trying to be cute and use word games but it's drastically different. One is in process. If you're trying to be the best, you know, Muslim that you can be, the best Mormon you can be, the best this or whatever. The other one, as Christians, as those who are in Christ, we can say, you know, we still want to be holy people. We're to be a called out people. God has called us out. And yet our hope is not that we can somehow finish the finish line, cross the finish line, and we would have done these things to earn that right. It's a difference between are you doing it or is it done? Let me explain it this way. This is uh, when you are in the process of doing it, there's always going to be that, that question in the back of your mind. Am I done yet? How many of you have, some of you are in retirement, so uh, you're, you're, you're seeing either the fruit of this or the need for this. <laughs> But as you start to get, uh, to get older, and even for the younger ones in here, do you ever have retirement, funding for retirement, someone in mind, even those that are in their 20s? Do you kind of have some little concept or some concept that, you know, one day I'm going to be older, and one day I'm going to hope to retire and kind of make more choices that I want to, and, and I hope that I have provision. So even if you're in your 20s and 30s and 40s, and you're still many years off from maybe actually retiring, it's already started a process, and one of the things that will come into that part of the process, especially as you hit your 40s, and I promise you as you hit your mid to late 50s, as myself, have I done enough? Start doing math, spreadsheets. When we look at a life and a salvation that is based on works, and how good you can be, you're always going to be asking a question. How good is good enough for somebody to go to heaven if goodness was the barometer? I mean, this is a really hard concept. It's not so much hard that we can't grasp it, because in one way it's very black and white, it's very defined, and yet we live in a world where we talk about all the time. It's really hard for us to think that a, you know, I always use Farmer Ted. I don't know if there is a Farmer Ted, but Farmer Ted, who's just a good guy, he's loved his family well, he's taken care of his, his wife well, he's raised kids well, he's given half of his crops away because he's just a generous guy. He's a nice guy, he's the nicest guy in the community. But if he doesn't know Jesus, biblically speaking, he does not go to heaven. And that's really hard for us because we see a lot of people that call themselves Christians 
that aren't nearly as nice as Farmer Ted. Would you agree that that's a conflict in your mind sometimes? And you're wondering, okay, God, how do you work this out? You know, I struggle with that at times. I know the right answer. Biblically, I am led to know the right answer. And yet, kind of just in a practical way, I'm going, you're letting that person in? And yet, Farmer Ted goes to hell? That's a hard concept in my little human mind to conceive. And apart from the gospel, I wouldn't come to that conclusion. Apart from biblical teaching, I would say, Farmer Ted was a whole bunch better than... I don't want to name any names because you know, somebody could be in here by that name and I don't want to offend somebody. But this other person, because in my mind, I'm going, Farmer Ted was five times better than that person. It all comes down to this. If you live your life by biblical understanding and you place all of your faith and your trust in what Christ has accomplished, you'll be able to say that second one. It is enough. What's at the end of that sentence? What's at the end of the first sentence? Would you agree? Would you agree that that's the two ways that we're going to live our life out depending on where you've placed your faith? See, here's the, here's what makes me really understand this or really grasp this. Even we who would believe the Bible and that Jesus Christ is 100% sufficient. We've asked this before. You've responded before. How many times have we doubted our own salvation? <laughs> Even when we have the scripture to tell us that Christ is enough, explanation point, it is finished. It is done. How many times in just the walk of life when we're not kind of feeling the warm spiritual fuzzies that we're going, okay, is this enough? Is this right? So if we struggle with that and we are people of the word and we're basing our truth not on our opinion but on the truth of God's word, how much more would we struggle apart from a truth? This is what it comes down to. This morning, are you living your life in that first question? And so even your reason for being church this morning is, well, you know... I gotta go to church because that makes God happy. God is pleased when we're in church. I'm never gonna diminish that God has pleasure when we meet in community together. But that pleasure that God has is not a saving pleasure. By sitting and occupying a pew this morning, you could occupy a, a seat for the rest of your entire life. And it would not please God for salvation. It's a pleasurable to God because he wants his people to gather together. But it does not solve the sin problem of our life. And yet even as Christians, if we're not really equipped and in the word, if we don't have a full understanding of what it means to be this quote-unquote in Christ, we're going to struggle with that first one. And my prayer, my prayer, is that not just on a Sunday morning when we're in students of the word, But on Tuesday night, in the famous 2 a.m. in the morning, because again, 2 a.m. in the morning is when Satan just begins to fill our minds with doubt and confusion and questions. That laying in the bed in the darkness and overwhelmed on a Tuesday night or a Thursday night at 2 a.m. and doubts start to come in, we would be able to say, no, it is enough. And that even if we had totally failed that day, if we had disappointed 
our wife or our husband, our children or our parents, if we had lived a life of sin that day and it was just all falling apart around us, that we would still be able to come back and say, no, even in the midst of this sin, it doesn't bring pleasure to God, it doesn't please God, and yet I am secure in Christ. But see, here's the part that's so hard. That is scandalous. Grace is scandalous. Because it doesn't kind of, well, Farmer Dad's a lot better than Pastor Bobby. And it goes outside of our own framework of deciding who's good and who's not good, who's done right and who hasn't done right. And it goes back to only looking at Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 8 is this beautiful picture of what it looks like to have life in Christ. Let's go to verse 1. We're really going to focus on verses, uh, you know, a little bit later, but I want you to see the first two verses here. Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now condemnation, no condemnation for those who are what? Why didn't he just say for those who are Christians? Could he have said for those who are Christians and it would have been right? The answer is yes. It's not a trick question. You, you can take out those who are in Christ and put in Christians, and it would fit because those who are Christians, who truly are Christians, this is true then that there's no, therefore, no condemnation. All the condemnation, all the judgment against sin has been placed on Christ. So it would still be true. So why does Paul, instead of the three times that he mentions Christians, the word Christian, the 164 times that in some form or fashion he uses the term, he and other writers in the New Testament use this term, in Christ Jesus. Because there's an important point that he wanted to know where our position was and where our hope was. Look at verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free, what does it say? In Christ, this freedom is in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and the death. What are we free of? The, the law. Why? Because of Christ Jesus. And so this identity of being in Christ isn't just kind of a cutesy phrase that Paul uses. It's very descriptive and it's very purposeful, just like he uses the terms. If you read on in Romans chapter 8, he uses the word to describe those people that are without Christ. He said, you're in the flesh. He describes those people that are what we would say Christians, those who are in Christ. He said, you're in the spirit. And he uses very definite words to describe both of these. He doesn't kind of water it down. He says, okay, those people have life. These people have death. These people are free. These people are bound by the law. And all through Romans 8, he's making these dramatic kind of way, way over here and way, way over here. Why? Because he wants us to understand that there's no middle ground. This morning, please understand that you're, you're not kind of in the middle. Please understand this morning that when you stand before a holy God one day, that there's not going to be this flip of the coin. Heads you win, tells you lose. Understand that the Bible's made it very, very clear that there's one hope. We looked at it the very first week of this series, the, the exclusivity of Christ and the hope that is in Christ. He is the only way. But now that we follow him, let's say that we've placed our faith in Christ and all of our hope for salvation is in Christ. Why would we want to hang on to this term? Look down at verse 14 as we get into this. 
For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. What does it mean that we are in Christ, that we're Christians? You know, if we were to go to Mount Everest and for some reason we wanted to climb Mount Everest, when you go there, you actually can't just kind of show up on October 20th and climb Everest on October 21st. You can't do this. I guess you could legally do that, but it would be insane to do that because your body is not acclimated. Those who climb Everest, and they have that, they plan this out, and they get there actually sometimes a couple weeks before so that they can go up to the base camps, spend some time there, and they just kind of, it's not like they're doing a whole bunch, but they're just getting acclimated to the thin air and to the surroundings. And as they kind of get ready for the, the, the big launch up Everest, they actually go up to the kind of the other base camp, and sometimes they'll go up there for a day or two, then come back, and then start all back over again. The whole reason is to get acclimated to this new way of thinking, the new air that's there. This is what Paul does in the New Testament. This is so radical. Paul's background, Gentile or Jewish? Jewish. He's a Jew. Law. The law means everything. How do you get right with the Holy God? You keep the law. This is radical for Paul. This is not something that he just kind of swallows and it goes down easy. This is a whole different mindset that Paul has ever entertained. This whole thing about grace, this whole thing about that Christ is sufficient and that Paul doesn't have to work on his righteousness in the sense of his own righteousness, this is radical to a Jewish guy who was a Pharisee, who admit the law was everything. And so Paul kind of spends some time in Romans chapter 8 kind of getting acclimated. He wants us to be acclimated to this whole thought process. And so he keeps on using this word, F-O-R, for. And he does this all the way through. In fact, if you have your Bibles open to Romans chapter 8, let me just give you a demonstration. When we went verse by verse, I kind of pointed this out to you. Let me do it again. Some of you are new. Some of you... Look at how Paul uses this word. He's making this connection of what Christ has done and then what we're called to do and and who we are now. First word of verse 2. Okay. Verse 3. 5. 6. 13. 14. 15. 18. 19. 20. 22. 24. 29. 38. First word in every one of those. Four. Now why is it? Because he's making this connection. Why does he use this word? Because he just has a very limited vocabulary? No, he's a very smart man. But he's always trying to connect who we are now in Christ because of what Christ has done. And so he uses this word consistently through there to make this connection. Romans eight fifteen. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. What does it mean to be in Christ? Let me give you three things this morning from Romans 8. First of all, it means that you have been chosen and you have been adopted. Jewish thinking, we covered a lot of misland. Uh, one of the things that Bob wanted for his celebration of life service, this concept of adoption was really big. I mean, he was really endeared to that. And so we spent a little bit of time during his celebration of life service talking about the beauty of this whole New Testament idea of adoption. 
Let me kind of refamiliarize that to you if you're not familiar with it. To the Jewish people, strength of your background always came in your relationship to family. That's why in the Jewish writings, in the Bible, you see the begats. Anybody know what the begats are? That so-and-so begat this person, that person begat. That's the old King James version of you know this lineage, this genealogy. And it was really important to the Jewish people because they said, you know, I can trace my family all the way back to King David. I can trace my family all the way back to Abraham himself. I'm a son of Abraham. It was huge for the Jewish people to be able to see that. So for the Jewish mindset, where you were in life was kind of your family and your heritage and your genealogy. For the Roman people, it wasn't so much where you came from, but where you are now. And adoption was a huge, huge thing in Roman society. Who is Paul writing the letter of Romans to? The Romans. Thank you. So he's writing to Romans, people that are coming from this culture, many of them Gentiles, they're not familiar with Jews, and they would have known, they would have been very familiar with how important this whole concept of adoption was. This choosing. See, there's a, there is a difference of being chosen Have you ever heard somebody say, yeah, these are our sons, this is our daughter. She was our little surprise. Have you ever heard somebody say that? I don't know how, I don't think I was surprised to my mom and dad. I don't know if I ever heard them say that, how I would feel. Oh, I'm a surprise? <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> but I guarantee you this, anybody who's ever adopted, that's not a surprise. If you've ever been through the rigors of adoption, this isn't, oh, I think I'll just might adopt. And then all of a sudden, no, there's, there's, there's a lot that goes into this. So one thing that we can say about if you're adopted is that you're not a surprise. You're intentional. You are chosen. So when Paul comes down and he wants to kind of say, okay, here's what God has done for you, does he go back and say, you know, you might be able to child a child of Abraham? He doesn't look at family. Why? Because not every Gentile, in fact, no Gentile could go back and say, man, we're left out. He doesn't use family, familiar terminology. He says, you're adopted. You're chosen by God. This is pretty special, guys. I, I, I made a mistake, Miss Lynn. I'm, I'm sorry. At Bob's celebration of life service, I said that this was so important to the Romans that they wanted five witnesses. And I was doing that off the top of my head, out of my memory. And at 56 years old, I don't need to be doing anything out of my memory anymore. It's actually not five. It's actually seven. What would they would do, they would always do it in public form. It was many times at the gates, it would be in a public forum because this was not done in secret. You didn't go in somebody's home and sign letters of adoption. It was always in public so that the public could say, and they would get seven different witnesses. And here's what they would do. They would make sure that those witnesses were of different ages. They would take the old and the wise and the learned 
and they would have a couple of them, and then maybe some more, you know, a generation back, and a couple more that were this age, and they would even have, if they were old enough, to, you know, to kind of come in, maybe some teenagers, older teenagers, so that they would have seven different people. Do you know why they did that? So that as time went on, and these older ones died off, there would be a living testimony by these younger ones that were still coming up and saying, I was there, I saw it, I witnessed, he is adopted, he was chosen. And what does the word of God say here? That the very spirit of God is our witness. He uses the same terminology. He's a man, you, you, you want to witness that God has chosen you? Then he seals you with his very spirit. And this is the sealing so that you can know. On those days when you're really kind of wondering, look what it says in verse 16. The spirit himself, God himself, bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Now, why is this so important? Because there are going to be those days that I'm going, I don't even know if I'm a Christian or not. And most of the times that we ask that, it's not that we're tripping over our faith because of some incident that has happened in life. Most of the time, it's a reflection. A lot of the time, it's a reflection back and just, we're just not having the warm fuzzies. I love the warm fuzzies of our faith. I don't discount going off on a retreat and going, man, I think we're up there on the mountain with God this weekend. I I don't discount that. We need some of those in our life. But have you ever been down here when there weren't any warm fuzzies? And it's on those days that God gives us his truth. He says, look, I've sealed in your very heart and your mind and your fiber of your being, in your soul. Isn't that what he said? Did he say, the Spirit bears witness in our mind that we are the children of God. Is that what it says? Does it say, the Spirit himself bears witness in our heart, in our feelings, in our emotions, that we are the children of God. What does he say? What term does he use? Our very Spirit. That's who you are. Minds can lie. Hearts can lie. So his spirit tells our spirit, I chose you and you are mine. And I don't know about you, but I need that some days, guys. In fact, I'm finding I'm needing that a lot of times. And it's not just a wish and it's not just because I've been really living good that week. or You know, God, I am a pastor. Surely I beat Farmer Ted. He says, no, I'm in Christ. And in there is security. Why? And he does everything to, to tell us there. When you were adopted, your name was totally changed because your old name was gone. If you had debt, you wanted somebody to adopt you because guess what happened to your debt in the Roman culture when you were adopted? Gone. That's kind of cool, isn't it? I see about 10 of y'all going, man, can we sign up for adoption? You know, can we kind of go back there and just debt gone? This is an interesting fact. In Roman culture, you could disown your children, but you could not disown somebody that you adopted. Let that thought go through your mind a little bit. Because some of you have thought about that. (laughs) Can we disown our kids? (laughs) Is there a warranty on this? (laughs) 
I mean, isn't that something that in Roman culture you could look to your flesh and blood and say, because of these choices or because of I, I, you're, I'm not your dad anymore. You're not my child. But if you adopted somebody, that choice was permanent. And you could never be disowned. This is how Paul describes who we are. He doesn't use the word Christian. He says you're in Christ because it's all because of the work of Christ. But he says here's the security that you have. So we're chosen. We are uh, adopted. Look at verse 15. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. In this spirit of adoption, again, it's into a Roman culture, it meant permanence, but it also meant intimacy. You just didn't go adopt somebody willy-nilly. There was great intention because most of the adoptions in the Roman culture were of adults, not of children. We see a lot of, you know, adoption happening now of children and it makes sense to us in our culture and our society. In the, the, in the Roman culture, a lot of it was adults. And it was a man who never had a son or something like that and so he didn't have an inherit, somebody to inherit and so he wanted his name to go on and so he would adopt and he was very careful to adopt the right person with the right kind of, you know, integrity and all that because he was going to carry his name. And it was permanent. And you couldn't go back. And that's how Paul begins to describe it. He said, now that you're a Christian, now that you've been chosen by God, adopted God, you don't have to go back to a spirit of fear. And you don't have to go back to a spirit of slavery. Slavery to what? What, do you, what, what were we slaves to before? The law. Right and wrong. And if I don't do enough right, I'm not going to get to heaven. He said, that's such a normal human thought process. The better you are, the closer you're going to get to heaven. But again, we come back to how much is enough? What if you're on, let's say that we did it by good works and you're on your way to good works. 22 years old, the light comes on. You go, man, I want to live a different life. And you start good works and you start doing good things and righteous living and all those things. And, but unfortunately at 34, you get hit by a bus. You get to heaven. He said, man, that was bad timing. Do you know that you were this close? Three more good works and you'd been in. And yet that's not how it works. Because you and I would be living with a question mark in our hearts and our lives forever. How much is enough? And we would do what every other human does. I'm just hoping that God grades on the curve. Because I know I'm not the best person in the world. But I can name five people that are worse than me. And we would live in judgment. And we would live in competition and in comparison. And God eliminates all that. And he says, you could never compare. You could never earn. You could never have this. And so I'm going to give you one who did earn, who was full and completely perfect, who fully satisfied the need for righteousness. And now you can live in him, in Christ. Chosen, adopted, free. Every one of these terms comes out in the most intimate one. And now you can call him Abba Father. Remember in the Old Testament that the Jewish people had such a high regard for God 
that they never want to offend God by calling him by name. And so they would take out the vowels of their name for, for God. And they would take the vowels out so that it would be unpronounceable. Because they did not want to pronounce and suppose upon this holy God. And so what you see in the Old Testament is this people that are called out, that they love God, and yet they're kind of still kind of living in this fear of God because what if we tick God off? And, you know, we see some of those things in the Old Testament where, you know, God gets ticked off in their minds. He really doesn't. And then this whole New Testament thing comes along. And Paul of all people, the Pharisee of Pharisees, the Jew of Jews, the man who could keep the law, he loved the law, he walked the law, he taught the law, he ate the law for breakfast and snacked on it before bedtime. And now he says, here's who I am. I'm chosen, I'm adopted, and God, he's my father. He's my father. That word Abba, Papa, And we were trying to determine, okay, what do we want to be called as grandparents? I didn't wait two seconds. Papa. To me, it's the most intimate. It's an Old Testament, kind of a New Testament. When we see it in the Old Testament, it's relational in the sense of familiar family. In the New Testament, it stands for this, who we now can call God. We can call him Abba Father. Uh, some people say you can translate that daddy, this intimacy. This would have been strange for Paul. And yet he says, this is who we are. In the book, Knowing God, J.O. Packer says, if you don't get the concept of the Father and that we are his children, you've missed the whole New Testament. He, he said, you know, he's not trying to put aside, you know, salvation. He's just saying, this is the whole New Testament. And now we are joint heirs with Christ. Let me close with this. Romans 7, 8, 17. And if we are his children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. Not only are you chosen, not only are you adopted, you are children that can call out, Abba, Father. But he said, you're heirs. And he kind of takes it up a notch and he says, not only are you heirs, but you're co-heirs with Christ. Let me finish with this question. Does God look favorably upon Jesus Christ? Little bit, mostly, totally. Totally. And this is the concept that Paul wanted to get across. By putting us, are we going to become gods one day? No, the Bible never teaches that. Are we going to become Jesus one day? No. Are we co-heirs with Christ? Yeah. This is an amazing concept. I mean, have you ever heard somebody say, look, I, I, I don't know where I'm going to be in heaven. I just want to be somewhere in the zip code. And you know what God says to you? That because of the finished work of what Christ has accomplished, you just don't get to go to heaven. You're somewhere in the zip code. You're kind of in the suburbs, and the celestial city is way down here, and God's throne is way down here. And you're just lucky if you even get kind of a gander every once in a while. He says, you are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Do you think Christ is going to have a pretty good seat in heaven, guys? 
This is who. And this is, we can say this, we can proclaim this. Why? Because we're just such great people? No, because it's all based on the grace of God. This isn't something you have accomplished. This isn't something I've accomplished. But then we can say, this is how I live. Why? Because I put all my faith in Christ now. And I am adopted, chosen, called. And I am a co-heir with Jesus Christ himself. That's what the word of God says. This isn't what a pastor says. This is what the Bible says. This is what God has shared with you and me this morning. Let's pray together. Father, will you overwhelm us with this whole idea of what it means to be in Christ? For Father, it is so hard for us to get away from a mentality of goodness and badness, of judging even our closeness with you based on how good we've been that week. So, Father, will you help us to understand what what Paul was trying to to pound away here in both Romans 8 but also in other places, that this is all of your doing, Father. You're the one that saved us through the work of Christ. You're the one that sent him to be our Redeemer. And now we can rest. We are free from the law because of that. Father, help us to understand. Father, we are Christians. We use that terminology. We know what it means. But, Father, help us to understand this morning what it means to be in Christ and the security that that brings so that we can live with that exclamation point and celebrate and worship and give honor and praise to the one who's deserving, Christ our Lord. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.